Stuart Preston, and this is the Consciousness Podcast, where each episode I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Bernardo Castro. Bernardo has a PhD in computer engineering with specializations in artificial intelligence and reconfigurable computing. He has worked as a scientist in some of the world's most foremost research laboratories, including the European Organization for Nuclear Research, CERN, and the Phillips Research Laboratories, where the Casimir effect of quantum field theory was discovered. He has authored many academic papers and books on philosophy and science. Three of his most recent books, available at online booksellers, are More Than Allegory, Brief Peaks Beyond, and Why Materialism is Baloney. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Bernardo Castro, where we dive into that notion that materialism is baloney. You have a background in computer engineering, um, specifically you know, artificial intelligence and artificial consciousness, which I find interesting. My undergraduate degree was in computer engineering myself. So how has, how has that, that area of work and study affected your, your views on consciousness? It's affected a lot. I mean, I, I, I never did artificial consciousness. I did artificial intelligence, reconfigurable computing. Um, we had specific applications in mind, so we didn't care whether the thing was conscious or not, so long as it did right. its job. Um, but of course, at a personal level, um, I was very interested in, in this notion of artificial consciousness. And for years, I thought uh, about, you know, what is it about an information processing device and corresponding software and information flows um, that, could, that could make it conscious, that could make it aware and perhaps even self-aware. And I thought about this for years, trying to imagine some kind of you know, configuration of information flow or architecture or whatever. I read many books on this. And eventually you come to the conclusion that it's just a, a conceptual illusion. You're playing a game. I mean, I, I could simulate, I, I love this analogy, so I use it. I could simulate kidney function down to the molecular detail on my computer, but that wouldn't make mm -hmm. the computer uh, pee on my desk. A simulation, <laughs> right, a simulation is not the phenomenon it simulates. Um, right. And the, the same thing applies to consciousness. I mean, whatever I do uh, uh, on the computer, however I program it, whatever piece of hardware I come up with that may manipulate symbols or whatever, whatever manipulation it performs on these symbols, it, it is still symbol manipulation. There is no reason to think that it is conscious, at least not any more reason to think that an, an old abacus is conscious uh, when you use it. Um, and then at some point, early this century, uh, I, I think it was 2003 or four, I read a paper uh, by David Chalmers um, talking about the hard problem of consciousness. And then it dawned on me that, uh, of course, I mean, uh, we will never uh, be able to deduce uh, the qualities of experience from parameters of physical arrangements, whatever the physical arrangement is. There is a major conceptual gap from one world to, to the other. Uh, and then the whole thing began for me. So you don't think there's a way for a, a complex computer for a conscious a consciousness that's maybe not a human consciousness, but maybe that is a um, a computer consciousness to emerge from a, an extremely complex network. I don't think consciousness in the way we normally understand it, in the sense of it being conscious. What do we mean when we say that something is conscious? We mean that it experiences uh, a a private. Uh, uh, inner life, that it has private mm -hmm. conscious inner life. Do I think a computer, a uh, silicon computer, a silicon device uh, can have private conscious inner life? No, I do not think so. And I do not think it can ever have. Uh, but I do think that behind matter, all matter in general, uh, there is phenomenal activity, there is conscious activity, um, but I don't think it's private to the computer in the same sense that a single neuron in my brain doesn't have its own private inner life as far as I can uh, assess through introspection. There is nothing it is like to be a single neuron in my head as far as I can introspect. There is only something it is like to be my entire nervous system as a whole. And that is me. That's what it's like to be my entire nervous system. So I think there is right. something it is like to be the entire inanimate universe 
but there is nothing it's like to be a computer or a home thermostat or a vacuum cleaner. There is only something it is like to be the entire inanimate universe as a whole. So tell me more about that. It, 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 there's something it is like to be the entire inanimate universe. What, what do you imagine that it's like to be the inanimate universe? I don't think I can imagine that. I don't think we have any reason to believe that it's anything like uh, human consciousness with, uh, with human intentionality, with premeditation, with planning and, right. and, and targeted will. Uh, I, I don't think that it's the way uh, it operates because I, I think human consciousness is a dissociative process in this universal consciousness I'm talking about. I think the consciousness of every living being is a dissociated alter, a dissociated personality, if you will of this universal consciousness. Um, and these dissociative processes have evolved through evolution by natural, natural selection. So they evolved to be the way they are through uh, uh, competitive uh, and cooperative pressures within the context of a planetary ecosystem. And uh, none of these applies to universal consciousness as a whole. Uh, so I don't think it is uh, 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 deliberate and purpose-driven, maybe not even self-reflective. I don't think it is self-reflective in the way we are. Uh, I see it as a, as a, a naturalistic consciousness uh, that operates according to certain archetypes uh, whose uh, extrinsic appearance, as far as we are concerned, are what we call the laws of nature. Hmm. So its, its own qualia, so to speak, are the laws of nature. I think the laws of nature, insofar as we can measure them, um, are the extrinsic appearance, the outer appearance uh, of qualia operating according to certain archetypes, to cer certain uh, built-in templates uh, of, uh, of uh, thought and feeling. Yeah, so I don't know if that ties into another notion that, you, that I read that you talked about, is that the notion of consciousness versus unconscious you know, being conscious versus unconscious. And I feel like I, I read that you said that there's like a, um, a comp, an aggregate unconsciousness that, that creates the general consciousness or that creates, you know, even, I don't know, the, the universe. Is, is that, does that tie together with what you're saying now about the inanimate universe being as a whole a consciousness? Yes, the problem is in, in how we define the terms. Uh, uh, In-depth psychology, since Freud and Jung and William James, the word unconscious has been used as a noun. Um, I think it's right. a misnomer. Um, I, I think so long as it is psychic or mental, it is conscious. Um, the problem is that there is a difference between uh, consciousness as in having qualia as in there being something it is like to be, um, mm -hmm. and, and what in the literature is called metaconsciousness or conscious metacognition. That's, that's a different thing that goes beyond mere qualia. Metaconsciousness is when not only you experience, but you know that you experience. It's like consciousness turning in on itself and experiencing knowledge of its own experiences. Uh, you may also call it self-reflection or conscious mm -hmm. metacognition. There are many names for it, but it is a specific configuration of consciousness that allows me to introspect and know that I am experiencing certain things, to think about my thoughts, to think about my experiences, and so on. I think this self-reflection, this metaconsciousness, is something uniquely... Um, uh, unique to life and to higher forms of life, like human beings, mm -hmm. maybe maybe cetaceans, maybe uh, uh, higher primates. Um, uh, I don't think it applies to universal consciousness as a whole. I don't think it applies to the consciousness behind the inanimate universe. Uh, the problem is that um, we tend to conflate pure consciousness without self-reflection with unconsciousness. And the reason is uh, we cannot introspectively mm -hmm. access uh, whatever falls outside the field of self-reflection, the field of conscious metacognition. We may be experiencing it, but we don't know that we are experiencing it. So you might as well say that it is unconscious because I can't report it, not even to myself. Um, right. and I think that's the origin of this word unconsciousness. Our inability to report it led the early uh, practitioners of psychology, clinical psychology, to think that it was unconscious. Uh, I don't think that was the case. 
Yeah, and it, it's. Uh, I talked to uh, Dr. Elaine Chu about music and consciousness, and you know, her her sister is a doctor, and it was, like you said to her, it was a binary thing: you're conscious or you're not conscious. That's the way doctors and psychologists will look at it. So it, it's an interesting notion to think that unconscious isn't really the, this binary thing that we're talking about. Um, when you think you mentioned in some of your writings somewhere that the, the self and the ego, this reflection, you know, mm-hmm. awareness of your awareness that, that it amplifies consciousness. And you mentioned uh, Robin Carhart Harris's psychedelic studies is actually decreasing brain activity, which is opposite from what I thought was going on in what he was presenting. But you mentioned how it, the psychedelics, you know, LSD, psilocybin, were actually decreasing brain activity. So is the unconscious state, is that a baseline condition of consciousness? Is that, is that right? I think what we call unconsciousness, which to me is just consciousness without metacognition, uh, mm-hmm. uh, is, 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 is the basis of mind. It is the basis uh, of all of existence. Uh, it's what happens before uh, a segment or dissociated altar of consciousness develops self-reflection. So it, it, it's the uh, primordial fabric, uh, the primary stuff, if you will, of existence, which happens mm-hmm. not to be stuff. It happens to be pure subjectivity. Um, and, and the, the relevance of the psychedelic studies that were done, and not only by, by, by the group of Professor David Nutt in the UK, you, you alluded to it uh, in the work of Robin Carhart Harris, but also in other places like the University of uh, Zurich in Switzerland uh, and mm-hmm. other places too, uh, which show that um, uh, a psychedelic trance correlates with generalized reduction of metabolism or brain activity. Um, especially in the default mode network, the, 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 the part of the brain that seems to correspond to what uh, Freud and Jung would have called the ego. Um, I think the relevance of, of that um, is that, you know, a, a broadening of experience, an enrichment of experience, an enrichment of inner life corresponds to a reduction of brain activity in the area associated with the ego. I think that's highly relevant for one, um, it's very difficult for uh, a, a materialist uh, uh, to, to, to reconcile materialism with these observations because under materialism, uh, inner life, yeah. inner experience is brain activity. So you would expect an enrichment of inner life, a very significant enrichment of inner life, like a psychedelic trance. Uh, you would expect it to correlate uh, with a, a significant increase in brain activity, and the exact opposite seems to be what happens. So that's one reason it's relevant. The other reason it's relevant is that it would appear that a reduction in brain activity in the areas associated with the ego uh, is what uh, uh, triggers this expansion of awareness. Uh, I, I find that relevant because it, it would seem to be that um, uh, the, the ego, the, this area that self-reflects, that knows of itself and, and, and identifies itself as a conscious entity, it seems to obfuscate uh, 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 everything else that is happening in the, in, in the psyche at uh, any given moment in time. It seems to create a glare, so to say, to amplify its own contents at the expense of everything else that might be going on. All the, all the inflows of information through the senses, through imagination, through intuition, or through whatever other means uh, might be possible. And, and when you sort of uh, uh, reduce the activity related to this self-reflective area that amplifies itself and obfuscates the rest, when you, when you reduce that activity, uh, it's, like, uh, it's like an eclipse at noon. You know, we take the sun out of the picture and suddenly you see the stars at noon. They are no longer obfuscated. Mm-hmm. You see that the entire night sky is populated with uh, things that you wouldn't even imagine uh, if all you knew uh, uh, were the sunny sky at noon. Uh, and that's why I think it's quite relevant. Yeah, that, that does make sense. And you're right. That does tend to break down the materialist argument that all this is, is originating from and tied to brain activity. Right. Uh, you want so, me to do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's like you know one of the other questions I did want to ask. I really enjoy your your papers and your videos on where you break down the materialist arguments. And so, and I know we don't want to spend all this time you know going over just that topic, but I'd be curious to know, you know, what is the most common materialist argument or 
the most interesting one to you? And then how, you know, what's your argument against that? Materialism, I think, is based mainly on three observations. And the three observations are correct, uh, but materialists uh, tend to think that the only reasonable way uh, to make sense of these three observations is materialism. And the observations are the following. Um, observation number one, we all seem to share the same world. Uh, if I report to you what I see around me and you are next to me, you would report something highly consistent with what I reported. So we seem to be sharing right. the same world. And this world seems to be outside of us. We seem to be inhabiting it as opposed to creating it, um, especially because this world doesn't unfold according to the whims of our personal volition. I can try to imagine a different world if I close my eyes, but once I open my eyes, there it is. It's the world the way it was, and I can't just change it uh, through an act of volition, just by wishing it to be different. So that's the second observation. We sh number one, we share the same world. Number two, this world is independent of our volition. And number three, mm -hmm. um, it is a fact that uh, our inner life uh, correlates very tightly uh, with, uh, with the measured brain activity. Um, if I were to... Uh, not under a psychedelic trance, under normal conditions, if I were to sit inside a functional brain scanner, a functional uh, a MRI, um, and, and, and be given tasks, uh, uh, what I experience uh, from doing those tasks, even if the task is just you know, to imagine something, uh, would correlate very highly with what neuroscientists would be able to measure as far as the patterns of my brain activations so there is this right. correlation between uh, inner experience and, and brain activity and what materialists say is that okay given these three observations uh, the most reasonable explanation is that there is a world outside consciousness that we inhabit this world operates according to the laws of physics which have nothing to do with our volition and somehow uh, arrangements configurations of arrangements of physical elements in this world somehow generate our inner life. And these arrangements, of course, uh, would be then uh, our brains, uh, which, which would generate our experience. Um, at first sight, it, it's all very reasonable, except that it faces a couple of insoluble problems, one of them being the hard problem of consciousness, which is that uh, um, it's impossible to deduce, even in principle, uh, uh, any quality of experience from parameters of physical arrangements. There is nothing about mass, spin, momentum, geometrical configurations of physical elements uh, in terms of which we could deduce how it feels to have a bellyache or to see a red apple uh, or, 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 or the bitterness of disappointment. Uh, th there is no logical bridge between the two other than an arbitrary one um, or, or another argument like uh, we know that... Uh, um, as far as science is concerned, all we can say about the physical world um, is uh, to establish certain patterns of behavior in terms of bare differences. In other words, science can characterize one thing in terms of how it differs from the behavior of another, uh, but science cannot say anything about the intrinsic nature of one thing in and of itself. Uh, it cannot say anything about the intrinsic nature of a positive electric charge. All it can say is how the behavior of a positively charged object differs from the behavior of a negatively uh, charged object right. and so on and so forth. So science is about patterns of bare differences. And there, are, there is a very good, powerful argument that shows that uh, you cannot have qualities from structures of bare difference. The other way around, you can. You can have uh, from the differences between qualities, the difference between how it feels to fall in love and how it feels to be bitterly disappointed, you can uh, abstract a structure of bare differences. But starting from a structure of bare differences, you cannot come to qualities. And it's a complex argument, but it's a very powerful one as well. Uh, it sort of breaks down, but breaks physicalism. Physicalism or materialism, which is a synonym, uh, doesn't mm -hmm. survive all this. And I think there, are, there, are very, there is a very good alternative uh, uh, explanation for the three observations I just described to you. I think idealism can describe all of them without incurring any fundamental problem at all. And is that, is that something you could uh, simply lay out for us? Sure. I, uh, look, my starting point is that before life ever emerged, there was only universal consciousness without self-reflection, mm -hmm. operating according to naturalistic patterns of behavior that we would call the laws of physics and so on. I think what we call life is just the appearance uh, of uh, a dissociated process uh, in universal consciousness. Life is what 
uh, dissociative alter, dissociative personality of a universal consciousness looks like uh, from across its dissociative boundary. Um, so what we call the inanimate world is just the extrinsic appearance of these naturalistic thoughts of universal consciousness. What we call life or our inner life is a dissociated uh, complex of universal consciousness, observing the inanimate universe through, uh, uh, across a dissociative boundary. Um, uh, I cannot read your thoughts and you cannot read mine uh, because I am dissociated from you and you are dissociated from me. I do not mm -hmm. have direct access to the thoughts that underlie a thunderstorm because I am dissociated from the inanimate universe. So I do not have access to that. And we all seem to share the same world because we are all dissociated alters of the same ocean of mentation, of the same universal consciousness. Uh, that's why we observe the same world. We are surrounded by the same stream of universal thoughts. So we do have a shared world and we cannot change it through an act of personal volition because we are dissociated from it. Our volition is within our altar. It's dissociated from the rest and therefore it cannot uh, 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 influence the rest. And finally, uh, brain activity correlates very well with inner life because brain activity is what inner life looks like from across the dissociative boundary. If something is the image of another, of course, they, the two of them will correlate. One is the image of another. And, and, and none of this requires that there exists anything other than consciousness and its activity, consciousness and its excitations and its vibrations. So uh, a bonus for idealism, which is the approach I just described, is that it is also much more parsimonious. Uh, 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 if you would uh, uh, take Ockham's razor as a, as a criterion, uh, um, idealism uh, is, is, is significantly better because it doesn't require you to postulate an abstract uh, ontological uh, substrate uh, uh, different than the only one you can know, which is mentation, which is conscious activity. That's all you have. That's all you know. Everything else is a theory. It's an abstraction. Um, and, and my claim is that abstraction is unnecessary. You can make sense of all observable facts without that abstraction. Yeah, and that can be a hard leap, you know, for a, a physicalist or a materialist. Surely, uh, when people are very used to a certain way of seeing and interpreting things, it's, it's difficult to, to get rid of uh, that, that conceptual addiction, so to say. Yeah, because I think, uh, I know for me, in my own way of looking at it, I think I take it too far when I think about the idealist view. I think that I hear some people saying that consciousness is, is actually physically creating everything physical out there. And I think what this, this image, this snapshot that you're talking about, how we experience all this and how everything out there is, is common. And that's why we have one common physical space here that we're experiencing. You know, that's a, it's, I think that most of us, and maybe I was taking it too far and just, that's why we start to think that that, that counter argument of, well, why can't I just in my own volition make everything here change? Yeah, there you go. What I'm defending is not solipsism. It's not the idea that the whole universe is your own private dream. Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that what you yeah. call yourself, what you call Stuart, is just a tiny dissociated personality from something much bigger and which Stuart cannot control. In that sense, my, uh, my view is pretty much naturalistic. It, it doesn't uh, contradict uh, naturalism. Um, what you described as this, in, this idea that consciousness creates the physical world, it's a dualist view. It's the idea that there is consciousness and there is the physical world, which is separate from consciousness. It's a different uh, substrate, uh, but mm -hmm. consciousness happens to be able to create it through an act of observation. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is no yeah. physical substrate distinct from consciousness. And what we call the physical is just a category of experience, which we call perceptual experience. And that category of experience, perception, arises together with dissociation. What you call perception is just the appearance of uh, mental processes dissociated from you because they are across the dissociative boundary. Um, the, the intuition, I think the best analogy to explain the intuition behind what I'm trying to get across is this. Um, suppose you're, you're a neurosurgeon and you're operating on somebody and you know brain surgery is done uh, very often with the subject awake because you don't feel 
pain uh, in the brain itself. I mean, in a sense, all pain right. is felt in the brain, uh, but when you manipulate the brain, there is no pain. Um, right. So imagine that you're there, the patient is awake, his brain is exposed to you, and you're there cutting through the brain and cauterizing and touching. It's a very physical object, that brain, right? It has texture, it right. has weight, uh, it has physicality, it has concreteness, it's right there, it's very palpable. Um, and at the same time, you know that some, somehow, somewhere behind, between quotes, behind that very concrete physical object that weighs three pounds, uh, behind that, there is the whole inner life of a person. Uh, somehow, you know, love affairs, disappointments, uh, great adventures, uh, all that phenomenological richness of the inner life of a person somehow corresponds to that tiny concrete physical object in front of you under your scalpel it, it's amazing but obviously this is how nature is this is a given as amazing as it may be it's a given uh, it's not up to question uh, what i'm saying is that in the same way that the matter the concrete matter of the brain corresponds to the entire inner life, conscious inner life of a person, I'm saying that the concrete matter of the inanimate universe as a whole, too, corresponds to the inner life of universal consciousness. What I'm saying is that this is what matter is. Matter is the outer appearance of inner experience, not only insofar as the brain is concerned, but insofar as all matter is concerned. And then the question is, where do you put the boundaries of individual subjects? Uh, clearly, uh, living beings, as far as we can say from our own experience, do correspond to, to a bounded subject, a dissociated personality with private inner life. I don't think the same applies to a computer because a computer doesn't metabolize. We don't have any hint from nature uh, uh, um, that uh, that uh, silicon chips should correspond to dissociative process, uh, processes of consciousness mm. as well. There is, there is no reason to think that. Uh, that's why I, I, I like to say that in my view, uh, only the inanimate universe as a whole corresponds to a subject as well. Yeah, and that helps me understand better about some of the my own problems I was having with idealism and coming from a kind of a, a physicalist point of view. Um, when you look at one of the things I find interesting, interesting is uh, Dr. Tononi's theory, you know, the integrated information theory. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think now, like I told you in the very beginning, sometimes the answers to my questions kind of come out from previous questions, but I still want to ask anyway, what, I you know, what are your views on his, on IIT and consciousness? <laughs> I think uh, now both uh, Tononi and uh, Christoph Koch both admit that IIT do not ex do not explain does not explain uh, how consciousness arises. Uh, it, it it cannot explain yeah. that, and I think that's admitted now by by the theorist creators as well. Uh, that's why they postulate some form of panpsychism, some uh, this idea that uh, right. every every subatomic particle is a little experiencing subject in its own right. Um, I think what the IIT is telling us empirically, what this idea of information integration tells us empirically, is uh, uh, um, what kinds of material configurations correspond to meta-consciousness, to inner experience that mm. can be reported, that can be uh, uh, accessed introspectively and then reported to self and to others. Um, and, and the reason I say that is that empirically, that theory is, is, is calibrated based on what subjects report. They need a reporting subject to tell them, am, am I experiencing this or not? This is what mm -hmm. I'm experiencing. Uh, that other thing, I'm not experiencing it because I can't access introspectively. So they depend on introspective reports. The problem, as we discussed earlier, is that uh, uh, you can only access introspectively uh, experiences that fall within the field of metacognition. Whatever you're experiencing, but you do not know that you are experiencing, you cannot report. So I think uh, the IIT is calibrated to, to catch uh, 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 um, a metacognition, conscious metacognitions or, 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 or metaconsciousness, which is uh, mm -hmm. the, the name you find in the literature. Uh, it's, it, 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 it's not about consciousness itself. Consciousness is always there. 
uh, what it allows you to discern is conscious processes that have entered the field of self-reflection or meta-consciousness. Yeah, and when I talked to Dr. Koch, you know, he talked about, you know, developing an instrument that could actually measure consciousness. And, you know, obviously he's a, he's a panpsychist, and so probably down to the, the quantum level believes that particles have their own version of consciousness. And so he, I think if I got it right, he believed that he could actually eventually, right now they're, they're measuring consciousness in a, in a living human being, but they think they could eventually measure consciousness in, in something as simple as a stone. You know, with the same instruments. <laughs> good, good luck with that. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll make a comment. Uh, well, I'll make two yeah. comments if, if you don't mind. Uh, one is, Please. these theories uh, have to be calibrated based on subjective reports. Otherwise, mm. you do not know what you're measuring. You have to calibrate it based on what a conscious subject has told you. So you are, because of that, you're by definition restricted to what, to what uh, subjects can access introspectively. So you are restricted to metaconsciousness. Um, another comment I would... Otherwise, make, you're extrapolating and it's not reliable anymore. No, you cannot extrapolate. You have no basis you to extrapolate. You can't do that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe you can have some theoretical basis to extrapolate, but that would mean that uh, your theoretical assumptions would then be built into your extrapolation. So how reliable mm. would that be? You're building prejudice into your conclusions. Um, uh, this idea of panpsychism, uh, it's similar to what I'm saying in one way and completely different in another way. It's similar in the, similar in the sense that it also uh, uh, infers that consciousness is everywhere, it's behind everything. And, and that's something I, 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 I agree with. Consciousness is behind everything, it's everywhere. Uh, where, it, where I think it goes wrong is that according to panpsychism, every little single, well, according to a popular version of panpsychism. There are many versions, but according mm -hmm. to a very popular version of panpsychism, it may be the, the, the most popular, uh, uh, individual subatomic particles are subjects in their own right. In other words, individual subatomic particles have private phenomenal inner life. There is something it is like to be a, a subatomic particle in and of itself. There is mm -hmm. something it's like to be an electron. There is something it's like to be a quark and so on. Um, I think this makes a, a very, very simple mistake. Um, it attributes to the experiencer or the subject of experience, our structure, a granularity that is only discernible in the experience itself. Um, let, me, let me try to unpack this. Um, where does our notion of subatomic particles arise from? It arises from our perceptions. We perceive the world around us. We perform experiments on this world. We use instrumentation to aid our perception, but ultimately we, we perceive the output of this instrumentation. So it's all about perception. And then we, we, we are able then to break down the world of our perceptions uh, into smaller and smaller and smaller constituent uh, elements uh, um, until we get to subatomic particles. So in that sense, subatomic particles are like the pixels of the perceived world. Uh, the smallest indivisible elements of the world we perceive uh, on the screen of perception. Uh, subatomic particles are the pixels of the screen of perception. Uh, uh, and then of course, biological bodies, including our own, are also, quote, made of subatomic particles insofar as we also perceive bodies insofar as what we call a body is also an image on the screen of perception. So subatomic, subatomic particles are the structure of perception. When we say now that the subject of perception, I or you or, or another person or an animal uh, um, mm -hmm. is made up of uh, subatomic little subjects that come together to form the subject that you call Stuart or the subject uh, that, 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 that I call Bernardo, uh, we are attributing to the experiencer the structure of the experience. We are attributing to the subject the pixels of the screen of perception. And there is just no logical reason to make this attribution. Of course, bodies are made of subatomic subatomic particles insofar as we perceive them for the same reason that uh, a person on an old-fashioned television screen, the image of this person on the television screen, would also be pixelated. 
this pixelation reveals something about the television screen, not about the person. The person is not made of pixels, right? Only the right. image of the person on the television screen. For the same reason, I'm claiming that uh, a subject is not made of subatomic microsubjects. For the exact same reason that the image of a person on a, a pixelated television screen doesn't mean that the person herself is made of pixels. <laughs> and so the, the subatomic particles make up the image of what we are experiencing. Yes, I think the experience of perception is an excitation of consciousness. Um, mm -hmm. This excitation has a certain granularity. These movements of consciousness have a certain granularity in the sense that there is a minimum movement uh, that you perceive. Uh, a movement smaller than that is not perceptible. And the image of this uh, uh, primary minimal movements or excitations of consciousness, the image of that is what we call subatomic particle. So subatomic particles are just the pixels of the screen of perception. That's all they are. They, they say nothing about the structure of the experiencer, of the one that perceives. And this really would apply to the entire physical universe. So a lot of things we talk about the quality of the experience of seeing the color red. And we would be talking about the, an image, the experience, the experience of that, that, that phenomenal experience to the experiencer, if I understand what you're saying, is really a, a, a heightened conscious awareness or image of that color red. Yes, I mean, what we call the physical universe is the contents of perception. That's what it is. There is nothing more to it. Everything yeah. else is an abstraction. Um, um, now, think of a, a person's brain uh, under a, a brain scanner, a neuroscientist looking at somebody's brain activity. Um, that brain activity is also an image. Um, to me, the inanimate universe is like the scan of the, quote, brain of universal consciousness. Um, it's also an image on the screen of perception. It's just that we don't need a brain scanner because we are immersed in that brain. In a sense, we are yeah. part of it. We don't need to look through a skull. We are immersed in it. And as it turns out, um, uh, the structure of the inanimate universe at its uh, uh, highest scales, at the, the largest scales, uh, is surprisingly similar to the structure of a mammalian brain. Uh, this is something that has been uh, discovered over the past, what, six, seven years? Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and there is no trivial reason for that to be the case. Actually, there is no known reason for that to be the case, for, for, for the cosmic web to be more similar to a mammalian brain than it is to the interior of a galaxy. There's no reason for that to be the case. Uh, and yet it is. And what this tells me is that, um, I, mean, I will speculate here, but it's a very nice speculation, so I will indulge. Um, I think the inanimate universe at, it, at its highest scales, the cosmic web, is just, uh, I would use the word God here under advice, it's just mm -hmm. God's brain. And, and it's God's brain in the sense that it's an image on the screen of perception, just like a person's brain is an image on the screen of perception. Uh, these are images of conscious inner life that correspond to these images, just like my conscious inner life corresponds to, the, to my brain activity, which doesn't mean that the God I'm referring to here uh, is, is a being uh, with an agenda, with a deliberate thought, uh, with a discernible will. No, I, I think it would be more correct to say that it's something that, um, quote, thinks instinctively in a way that is very little uh, uh, like uh, human thought. Um, human thought has evolved in a planetary ecosystem uh, to survive in a planetary ecosystem according to its pressures and limitations of resources mm -hmm. and so forth. None of that applies to, to, to universal consciousness. So I would, uh, I would think of it as, uh, I, I would think of its inner life as a stream of phenomenality that unfolds according to very regular patterns and regularities. Patterns and regularities that appear to us on the screen of perception in the form of what we call the laws of nature. That makes sense. That ties back to what you were telling me earlier about that uh, inanimate universe. You're right. Um, so let's go to jump to, to death. So where do you stand then, you know, and looking at the, I guess we described the original emergence of consciousness out of this universe 
universal consciousness. Um, you know, what, where do you stand on what happens to an individual human consciousness after death or perceived death of that, that body? Yeah, I think consciousness has always been there. Consciousness, consciousness as an ontological substrate, it was never created. It's that within which all creation happens. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, uh, the consciousness of an individual living being, like a human being, I think what it is, is a, a, a dissociated complex, a dissociated alter, which is the psychiatric word, uh, dissociated personality, of universal consciousness, uh, a kind of a a localization uh, uh, of universal consciousness, um, which then creates the illusion of separateness. Because um, just like a a person suffering from multiple personality disorder has these different personalities that don't identify with the others and think they are separate, uh, I think for a reason very analogous to that, I don't identify with the rest of the universe and I think I'm a separate being. So I think life is the image on the screen of perception of dissociated complexes in universal consciousness. From that perspective, what would be the end of life? It would be the end of dissociation, right? It's very logical. There is nothing else for it to be. Um, And and from that perspective, I think from a first-person point of view, death is experienced on the one hand as an enrichment of consciousness, Uh, um, dissociation ends so you reconnect of the conscious activity underlying the universe around you 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 again recognize that that's you as well it's not separate from you it's just a part of you that you forgot uh, during your lifetime Mm. that's on the one hand on the other hand uh, i do think uh, that there is a recognition uh, that there is an end to your human uh, uh, personality to, to, to the idea that uh, you are Stuart or that I am Bernard or I think we come to realize that uh, yeah maybe I was Bernardo but I was always much more uh, than Bernardo and I just forgot uh, you could think of it as waking up from a dream when you're dreaming yeah. you have that dream uh, personality that dream alter ego uh, when you wake up you suddenly realize that you weren't only that that, that that little personality in the dream was a creation of your mind, but that the real you was not only that character, but the rest of the dream, the dream as well. You were doing the whole thing. You just forgot that you were also behind the world of the dream that your dream ego was inhabiting. Mm. You forgot that that entire world was being created by you, that you were not only your dream ego, you were the whole dream. Um, you know that when you wake up. We all can relate to this because we, we've all had this experience. I think death is this to the power of N. Um, you suddenly realize that, uh, hey, I, I was doing the whole thing here too. <laughs> I was not just Stuart. I was not just Bernardo. Uh, I was playing all parts. I was doing the whole thing. Well, that, that almost sounds um, sol- solipsist again. Yes, accepting, accepting that, uh, yes, you can say that, Stuart dies, then Stuart wakes up and, oh, I was doing the whole universe, but uh, the same applies to Bernardo. Bernardo also realized that he was doing the whole thing, um, and the, the logical conclusion is that Stuart and Bernardo were the same, the same thing. <laughs> right. You know, and that, uh, that plays into and is consistent with a lot of accounts of near-death experiences. Yeah, you know what you're describing there, and I haven't I haven't studied those per se. My my wife has dived into that pretty deeply, but I did have a conversation with Ed Kelly, whom I, I know you're familiar with and, and know. I believe uh, I think he wrote an afterword to one of your books. That's correct. Yeah, I know Ed. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and so he's he's more of the the psi phenomenon, not just near death experiences. But as you're describing this that we're, we're more than just this localization of Stuart or Bernardo. Um, that seems to really be very consistent with reports of near-death experiences. Absolutely. I mean, I, I also, you know, honesty, uh, I am not very versed in, in the literature of near-death experience. Uh, I have read several books, but uh, I'm not as versed as people like Ed and others are. 
Uh, but uh, I know of a few, I mean, I can mention one case off the top of my head. Uh, there's a passage by uh, Anita Morjani, I think it is her name, uh, wrote a book mm -hmm. about her own near-death experience. A uh, very popular book and a very special case because it was very well documented. She was lying in hospital when the whole thing happened. Um, mm -hmm. And she relates a pass. there's a passage in which she says that she met her diseased father but and she got very close to him but and then she says uh, it's not like i met him it was like i was him and i thought wow mm. that's exactly that's exactly it right uh, you know yeah. the person you're meeting from within because you're also that person but notice that this isn't solipsism solipsism is the idea that all that's going on is stuart's private dream and that bernardo has no inner life there is nothing it's like to be bernardo uh, Bernardo only exists uh. so far as the voice in Stuart's computer right now. That Stuart is dreaming that voice up. Stuart's dreaming the computer and Bernardo. And Bernardo himself has no inner life. There's nothing it's like to be Bernardo. He only exists as an image in Stuart's dream. That's solipsism. Uh, what I'm saying is that, no, 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 both Stuart and Bernardo have inner life. There is something it's like to be Bernardo, and there is something it's like to be Stuart. It's just that the underlying subjectivity uh, between Stuart and Bernardo is the same. They are both dissociated alters, dissociated complexes of the same subjectivity, the same underlying yeah. uh, field of consciousness. That's also the, it's not the hard question of consciousness, but it is a very difficult one, is how can you you know, prove to me that you, you are real, that you are conscious. It so it kind of goes back proven. to that. Yeah, it cannot yeah. be proven. Uh, ultimately, you cannot disprove solipsism. Um, yeah. But I would claim that uh, the, the simplest, most parsimonious explanation is not solipsism. And I have an argument for that that I discuss in one of my books. I don't know what, whether you want to get into that. Uh, it's more or less elaborate. It's not something I can explain in an aphorism. Uh, but I think that, that there is a good argument to claim um, that solipsism is not the most parsimonious explanation. And that's based mm. on, on uh, uh, the relationships that we can establish between our own behavior and inner life, which we know firsthand, uh, and the behavior of other people. Um, the argument would say that uh, the easiest explanation for the behavior of other people, the simplest explanation, is that they too have inner life, have private streams of, of experience. Right. Which, uh, which book is that in? Uh, I think that's I can point in, people to it. That's in Why Materialism is Baloney. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. Um, as we get here to the end, I guess I have a, a few kind of general questions. The, the first one would be, um, is there anything else that I should have asked you that I didn't? Anything else you wanted to discuss? Oh, I don't know. Uh, we, we've talked. Uh, the conversation has been so intense. I don't remember anymore exactly everything we covered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, did, we did bounce around. You're, you're, uh, so, so much great information has come out here. So in, you, in your own studies and in, in looking at consciousness, is there anything about the future uh, discoveries, advances, anything about the future of the study of consciousness that you're excited about or that you see might come about? Hmm. I'm not really a, an, an optimist. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do what I can to improve the world um, because I think, you know, our current uh, worldview enshrined in our culture as the mainstream right now uh, is, is just a very bad fiction. It's a very bad story. It's illogical and empirically dishonest, even if you look at the latest coming out of quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would like to change that story because I, I just think it's, it's, it's demonstrably untrue, demonstrably bad. Um, mm. I, I don't, I would not pretend to, to know that uh, my own favorite story is the truth. I don't think uh, that, you know, advanced monkeys uh, can know the ultimate truth. 
but I think my story is certainly closer to the truth than, than the mainstream today, especially because my story is not a new story. It's a very, very old story that I'm dressing with a new vocabulary, more modern words, more modern analogies, something that people today yeah. can relate more than they can relate to the Vedas. Uh, but it's certainly not a new story. So I, I, I do my best to improve the story, to, to bring our cultural narrative under which we live, under which we suffer, under which we have the assumptions that drive our emotional life, um, to improve that story. Uh, am I optimist? Um, no. No, I think we are buried hmm. under so many layers of illusion and delusion that we force upon ourselves that I'm not sure we'll be able to to resolve this before we 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 kill ourselves as a species. <laughs> In all honesty, oh. uh, so yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not that, sure. I am. Yeah. yeah, that is. Uh, you're right. That is a pessimistic view, but I uh, honestly one that I've had myself. Sometimes you see things going on in the world, and you're like, no, we're not going to make it to the things that we want to discover. Yeah, uh, even the way the problem is framed today, can we explain consciousness? Even this framing is already wrong, you see, because when, you, when we ask, can we explain consciousness, we are asking to reduce consciousness to something else. Because to explain mm -hmm. A in terms of B is to reduce A to B, is to say that there is only really B, and A is a kind of epiphenomenon, it's an illusion, it's a, it's a, it's a consequence of A, uh, uh, sorry, it's a consequence of B. So when you say, mm -hmm. can we explain consciousness, you're basically trying to, 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 to answer the question in the form of, well, actually, there is only something that's not consciousness, and we can explain consciousness in terms of that. So even the way the question is formulated already implies a wrong answer. Um, so I'm, I'm not optimist. I think the way forward is when we stop asking that question, when we stop asking whether we can explain consciousness and we focus on explaining everything else in terms of consciousness. Mm. I think that's the way to go. But uh, how many people formulate the problem this way that you know today? Not that many. So no, I'm not, not very, very many. <laughs> yeah, very, very rarely. In fact, as I mentioned to you in an email that I sent you, I think somebody asked a question similar to that of David Chalmers at the, the science of consciousness, you know, event down in Tucson, which reminded me to reach back out to you. So you're right. Not many people are framing the question that way. So maybe that's something that, uh, you know, we can get going. Yeah. 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 Well, Bernardo, Dr. Castro, I really appreciate your time today. This has been uh, super fascinating and I, and I can't thank you enough for participating here. It was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Maybe you should do that again sometime. I would love to. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash theconsciousnesspodcast at our Twitter handle at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.